Kia ora whanau. Welcome back again. Get to be here, Koe. Oh, pretty tired myself. Hope you're doing well, though. Uh, this is the Department of Conversation where we make sweet, sweet love to your ear holes. Been doing it since 2018, and we have another love session for you today. Uh, Mike Dickerson is a really interesting dude, actually. He's a scientist, he's a PhD, he's a doctor, he uh, works with insects, he knows all about uh, massive flightless birds, which he did his PhD in, but he's also uh, what they call a Wikipedian at large. He's, I think, the only person in New Zealand doing it, basically working for Wikipedia, going around the country, teaching people how to use Wikipedia and building up the Wikipedia knowledge of New Zealand on Wikipedia. Um, so yeah, really really interesting conversation for you today. Lots of interesting topics touched. I hope you enjoy the conversation with Mike Dickerson. We are live. We're live. We are live, Mike Dickerson. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much. Dr. Mike Dickerson. You can call me Dr. Mike if you like. I noticed that uh, actually looking around the website, a lot of well, website, the internet, the interweb, uh, you're referenced as Mike quite a lot as opposed to Dr. Mike. Is that something you kind of don't use in your professional life so much? Um, I find if you put it on the business cards, people hold on to them longer and read them for longer. <laughs> uh, that's about it. I mean, it's been over 10 years since I did my PhD and it was in giant flightless bird evolution, which doesn't come up very often in real life. So I feel like it's capitalizing a wee bit to try and say this is relevant to every conversation. But, um, you know, I did, you know, I'm a zoologist by training. You did your PhD at Duke? That's right, in North so Carolina. So what are they, the, the, the Blue Devils, the something devils? The, the Blue Devils, that's indeed. They are the Blue Devils? Go Devils, that's right. Go Devils. Yeah. Um, that's interesting, though, because you're a Kiwi. Mm-hmm. And I think about giant flight, flightless birds, obviously, as our moor. Too right. And you did your PhD on giant flightless birds in America. Could I mention that that is the only continent that doesn't have any giant flightless you, birds? You could mention that if that you is, wanted to do That's that. kind of an important point. Uh, yeah, it is a bit bizarre, isn't it? And uh, when I was doing my um, honours work at Vic, one of my supervisors said, you should do a PhD, but you should try and do it out of the country and get to a big university. Wow. Uh, and that was actually really good advice in retrospect because we had a huge department at Duke and lots and lots of grad students all helping each other out. And you do learn as much from the other students as you do from the lecturers. Uh, so it was really good to get over there, but I had no idea how the overseas university system worked. And I just applied for random universities that looked like they might do something with giant birds and got in. Um, now I look back and I think, oh my goodness, I'm, it's, it's amazing that I fluked into actually a department with a nice supervisor and good people. But yeah, uh, but I, so I ended up doing most of my research work in museum collections around the world because right. most of the giant flightless birds are extinct. So I would be working in the Smithsonian wow. in DC or I got a summer to go through museums in Europe and measure giant bones and so forth there. So it was pretty good. It was not absolutely required that I be in New Zealand, though I did come back for a research trip here as well. Did you yeah? Did you do work on the moor while you were over? It's interesting that you, yeah. if you're a Kiwi, you kind of take with you a particular yeah. you know history of a giant flightless bird, and maybe in America, far fewer people would know of that bird. Was yeah, that a part yeah. of your studies? Yeah, I did moa were well, one of the big species that I was working on, uh, and most of the collections, of course, of those are in New Zealand. But there's actually really substantial moa collections in Britain and in the US. So it wasn't hard to find stuff to work on. And those are those collections that have been taken from New Zealand too there, or was yep. there more around other parts of the world millions of years ago? No, 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 only in New Zealand. Okay, all right. So what happened in the 19th century when they came across a big moor deposit in a swamp or sand dunes or something or in a cave, 
they would collect you know, thousands of bones and they would start trading them. They'd start sending skeletons overseas and usually exchange them for things like, well, Canterbury Museum exchanged them for European antiquities and Roman right. coins and whatnot. So you have our moor, yeah. we'll have your Roman coins. That's, that was the trade. Of course, you know, everyone wants to see the moor and nobody wants to see Roman coins. <laughs> um, so they don't do many exhibits on that. Uh, but at the same token, if you go to the museum in Vienna, beautiful natural history museum, and you walk up the stairway, and they've got three big articulated more skeletons just stashed in the stairwell. Really? There's no room to put them on display and nobody sees them there. Wow. So, you know, there's some talk of, you know, we should be repatriating our museum collections back to New Zealand and no one's quite gotten as far as saying, well, maybe we should be taking back all of our more skeletons and more eggs and everything else. And I don't, I don't have a you know, strong opinion on that. I don't think they're doing any harm over there. Uh, there are some museum collections, natural history collections, that would be actually great to have back in mm. New Zealand. But uh, the moor bones are not the most urgent priority. Do you think that um, uh, more culturally relevant antiquities, the taonga from Māori yeah, and that exactly. kind of stuff, that kind of stuff should come back? But yeah. for example, a moor bone, I mean, you think about somewhere in Europe seeing a New mm. Zealand mm. fossil – I don't know, something about that. Maybe it's the marketer in me thinks that's probably quite good for New Zealand. It is, yeah. And it's, it's, I think it is actually quite important that people all around the world get to see and experience some of these amazing things, amazing features of New Zealand. And if it means that there's a, a more skeleton in the Smithsonian that everyone can go and see, that's great. Yeah. I think it is actually a good thing. Uh, because for the, by the same token, we have lots of collections in New Zealand from all around the world, and in some cases that's the only place that people can, in New Zealand will get to see them face to face. In the museum in Whanganui, where I worked for five years, there was a badger um, in the collection, a beautiful stuffed badger that was collected in the 1890s uh, by a Whanganui chap who'd gone back to the old, back to home. Back home, back, back to the home, motherland. Back to visit. <laughs> I think he was looking for a wife, actually. Uh, but went back home and he commissioned a stuffed badger to take back to Whanganui with him because, as he rightfully thought, all the kids of Whanganui would never have seen a badger. Yeah. But they'll all, you know, and in the years to come, they would probably all read Wind in the Willows. And, of course. You know, but how would you see an actual badger? You'd have to go to the museum to see it in New Zealand. That was his thinking. Uh, things have changed a bit now that we have YouTube and Dattenborough documentaries and whatnot. So, but there is still something different about the real object. And that's the thing that museums should and do trade on, is that they have the real things. I heard a story once that when uh, the platypus was discovered mm -hmm. and sent back, to England, yeah, they thought they were taking the piss. They thought they that thought someone had a, actually, yeah. it was a joke and that someone had stitched together yeah, yeah. reptile, mammal, yeah. you know, and that's, is that a true story? Yeah, that's true. The, the initially, when it was first exhibited, people were incredulous. <laughs> they thought this is ridiculous. It's like a circus act. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and, it was, and it wasn't until you look at the skeleton of one that you realise, oh no, this is, this is totally a real thing. Wow. So there was all sorts of amazing stuff like that happening in the 18th and 19th century when for the first time European colonising expeditions went and started shipping back elements and treasures from the Southern Hemisphere. And what happened in New Zealand, even on Cook's um, second voyage, they landed in um, Endeavour Cove and one of the naturalists went, went on shore and they saw these amazing beetles with huge long noses, giraffe weevils, mm. our longest beetles. And they collected some and sent them back, and they're still there in a wooden case um, in Denmark, I think, Fabricius collection. And those, uh, those type specimens, that's what the ones that they were named after, they thought the males and females were two different species because they're so different in size. It's an easy mistake. 
but nowadays all of those type specimens, those very first collections, are still over in Britain mm. in Europe. And it's a bit of a problem if you're an entomologist in New Zealand and you're studying insects and you want to check what we've got against the actual species, the, the first thing that was actually named after, uh, you have to go to Britain to go look at it. So those are collections that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm being an activist now and saying we should repatriate those collections. Right. Those New Zealand type specimens should be back in New Zealand where the New Zealand entomologists who are doing the research on New Zealand insects can actually study them. So, yeah. so those insects are still alive around today or have they gone extinct? Uh, no, they're still around. Okay. They're still around, but many species, uh, there are lots of little beetles that are known from just one specimen. Oh, really? That have been collected and it might be 100 years ago and we're still searching for more of them. We're still trying to compare them to the species we do have, but that specimen might be in the British Museum. It's not very convenient. No. <laughs> Although it's a good business trip. Jeez. <laughs> oh, yeah, you'd like. I, of course, you know, scientists have these massive business travel budgets that they love to just fly all over the world. You know, living First off par- large, large. Yes. Yeah. That's right. I mean, that's someone's entire research budget to go to Britain to look at a beetle. It'd be nicer if it was just down the road. Yeah. So, and the beetles are a lot smaller. It's easy to fly there. <laughs> just stick them in the post. Fast yeah, yeah, post. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting thought. Um, and, and I don't say this in a in a um in a negative way, but someone who is an entomologist, and we haven't said that yet, but you're an entomologist, so that's well, insects. I mean, no, that's that's an area that I'm, I'm researching in now. But right. I, I wouldn't say I'm a professional entomologist. I started off working on birds as an ornithologist. Right. But when I was working at the museum, we realised that, A, you know, working with giant flightless bird bones is a bit inconvenient because you have to travel, you shift yourself around because they're a lot heavier and come more cumbersome than you are. Right. And they don't fly. And, and they uh, don't fly. No. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but insects were everywhere. They're mostly unknown in New Zealand. We missed there's so much still to discover about even what species are out there. Really? Oh, yeah. And a place like Whanganui had hardly ever been properly looked at and searched. So I was realised, my God, I could get all the gear I need from the $2 shop, you know? So it's, it's cheap and easy to work on insects, and there are so many species need of work. Whereas people have been looking at moa bones for 150 years. There's still lots of good work going on them, but you need a genetics lab these days to, to work on them. Do you find you get more excited in your work mm. about, uh, you know, a moa bone or a, a prehistoric bone that no longer exists, mm-hmm. or do you get more excited about seeing, feeling, touching, watching a living live animal? Oh boy, it's a trade-off, isn't it? Um, to me, I feel that there's so much to still to discover mm. about the past of New Zealand. Like, if I had a time machine, I know that I would want to go back initially about, you know, 50,000, 100,000 years. You know, that would be great. That would be enough. If that's all I could do... What, I would, what would you see? What would you want to well, go back Well, that's the thing. What would you find? We don't really... Do you mean here you'd like to go back that distance in New Zealand? And then New Zealand, okay. yeah. Yeah, and just right here, right here in Dunedin. Yep. If I could get in a time machine, I'd say you can't travel any, any anywhere in space all right. and you can only travel 100,000 years in time. And okay. I'd say, sweet, <laughs> I'll take that trade, even if it's a one-way trip. All right. Uh, because you'd come out, you'd pop out and you'd be inside, you know, Dunedin was partly, it was probably back in the Ice Age at that point. And walking around, um, the sea level would be a lot lower. There'd be these giant moa and adzbills and the giant eagle would be flying overhead, the giant hawk. That uh, would be a, the Haast Eagle. That would yeah, be amazing yeah. to see. Exactly. We don't even know what colour it was, you know? Mm. We know so little, let alone their behaviour. So no feathers found, nothing no, like that? No, nothing for Haast Eagle. We've got a few more feathers. Right. And we're still, but you know. So when was that, when would the last moor have been working, walking the um, uh, the earth? About 500 years ago. Okay. Yeah, so so Māori, Māori were here, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, when Māori, particularly in the South Island, arrived, 
Uh, this was after you know being in the Pacific, where you've got nothing much larger than a chicken. Yeah. <laughs> you get off the the waka here around the coast of Dunedin, and it's incredible. It's uh, would be a huge pantry of these giant things. The shores would have been covered with seals and penguins. The forests would have been full of big flightless birds. Uh, I mean, it's paradise. And you know, people being people, people overexploit everything. People ruin everything. Aren't people the worst? We just we just ruin yeah, everything. Because you say that, right? Yeah. And I and when I lived in Auckland, Tiritiri Matangi was one of my favourite places to mm, go. Mm. Love going to Great Barrier, that kind yeah, of yeah, thing. Yeah. But you say that, and it just actually makes me quite sad because, yeah. ironically, what you've just said about the time machine, I think I've said it on this podcast yeah. before, and I've said it many times before. If I could do a travel back in time thing, yeah. I mean, you said fifty thousand years. I was like five hundred years ago to this spot, just to be in the bush, yep. to hear and see what it was like. That's it. That would be nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, let's say a thousand years, okay? Because as soon as people arrived here, they started burning off all the eastern forest. So all of the Canterbury Plains was forested. Uh, most of central Otago was forested as well. And that all went pretty quickly as soon as people started lighting fires and clearing bush. So a lot of extinctions had already happened by 500 years. So let's try a, let's try a thousand. There were okay. no, no people in New Zealand a thousand years ago. Absolutely none. So there was a still amazing to think, really, isn't it? At a time when we've got castles going up and the Crusades just starting. Yeah, and, you totally. know, in Europe, no human being had ever even seen these islands. Yeah, I, rem- I, re- I remember watching, it might have been a grand design show, but it was that kind of show where they were redoing a house. Sure. And I remember um, watching this episode and it was obviously an old medieval house mm, that had been mm. built on and built on and built on. And they took off some of the wall mm. and there was red clay there. And there was handprints oh, in the red clay. Amazing. And I think they said they were 700 years old. They expected yeah. that wall. Yeah. So 700 years ago, mm. you know, they say Māori got here about 800 years ago. So basically yeah. when, yeah. when, when Māori got here, yep. there was someone in some part of England making that yep. wall, having technology. Yeah. And you, the thing is you can still go to some spots in New Zealand. You could find the traces of 700 years ago, people digging a hole or people having a cookout. Um, amazing to think that you've got that continuity for hundreds of years. But – but it is also incredible to think that these islands were uninhabited a thousand years ago, uh, at the same time as most of the rest of the world had been more or less trashed a bit by humans. This was still untrashed. And it was, you know, there was a huge wave of extinctions that happened when people arrived initially, and that was all the big, easy stuff, and all the dry forests went. And then a second wave when Europeans arrived and they wiped out all the slightly less large things and um, the slightly less easy to clear forest. And yeah, it's uh, it always it just pains me all the time when I think that we've we've lost all of that. Um, and even now with with mainland islands like Tiriti Matangi, and we're trying to recreate just a sort of a something of an impression of what it might have mm. been like, but we've actually lost so many big components of our natural history. Um, and they, even those offshore islands, they, they start to give us a taste of what it was like on the mainland. And it's really important that I think that every New Zealander goes to somewhere like Olva Island or Tiri or even a, you know, a mainland island and just starts to get a feel. But it's really, it's, it's almost impossible to try and convey what yeah. this land would have been like. I mean, the whole coast would have been a seal colony, would have been elephant seals, um, fur, fur seals and sea lions everywhere, penguins everywhere, burrowing seabirds, huge colonies of seabirds on all the slopes facing the sea, right around, so millions of birds coming ashore every night um, in the breeding season. Um, and then the forests all crawling with giant um, insects and crawling with lizards and birds eating them. And 
just an just an incredible experience, and you can only even get a taste of that on a few of the islands, like Stevens Island. And even then, you can't because like more yeah. and that kind of stuff not there. Exactly. What if you if you did your time machine thing yeah. and, and you bloop, and you're in the middle of what is now Dunedin, yeah. and you were there in the bush a thousand years ago, would it have been dangerous? Would the moor and that have been dangerous, or would yeah. you have been apex predator immediately? Oh, immediately. The only thing I'd be watching my back for would be uh, giant eagles. Right. But the two or more, I would have probably just looked like a weird-shaped moa. The only big bipedal thing they would have come across would be other moa. As far as we know, moa weren't especially territorial. They've got no fighting claws like a cassowary does. Right. They're big, but they're quite slow-moving compared with other giant flightless birds. So, you know, you could probably outrun one. Um, They probably lived at quite low densities. Uh, So I doubt that I'd have much to worry about unless I really tried to take one down. They could probably give you a nasty kick. But most moa were actually smaller than people. Now, you forget this because we all focus on the giant moa, but there were you know, eight other species that were the size of an emu or smaller. Uh, so they were all around, but definitely the giant eagles were hunting moa, we know from the claw marks and the bones, right. and they were able to take down even a big one. So I would definitely be worried about them, certainly in the daytime. I would probably be best to come out at night and watch my back. So how big? How big were the giant eagles? Well, this is the sad thing. Like you think, oh, it's a good carry people away. No, it's about 15 kilos, which, you know, is about the size of a goose or a swan. Right. <laughs> but uh, if you can imagine a swan with gigantic claws yeah. dropping on you, that's a bit different. When a wingspan of what? Oh, wingspan two to three metres. Right. Yeah. So decent size wingspan. So uh, it's but a story. It, it's yeah, a, it's it's, a floor it's, to ceiling. Yeah. So it's not picking you up and carrying you away or anything. It's a big, But it's messing you up pretty good. Oh, yeah. We know definitely that those claws could have wrapped around your head and dug into your brain. No worries. Yikes. Pretty big. And those flightless assassins just dropping on you in silence. Yeah. Well, it's hard. Well, this is the question what were they we don't know yeah so this is why the time machine would tell us the thing that isn't preserved when we have just bones we don't know anything about their sounds their behavior Uh, imagine if we only knew about kiwi or kakapo from their bones like if we knew kakapo all we'd know is this is a big parrot it's flightless wouldn't know anything about their their booming behavior and the licking bowls that they create and their kind of bizarre habits and their habits of running up trees and jumping out thinking they can fly and forgetting they can't and you know their weird sort of sexual mating behaviour they're, they're like the Odie of the bird world yeah, you know, Odie, yeah. Odie and Garfield that yeah, dumb yeah, dog, yeah, yeah, they're yeah, like yeah. the Odie of the bird oh, world and, and they're just adorable creatures yeah. you know and, and but there's none of that would we could tell from bones right all we'd know is that this is a very large parrot and it can't fly and there are so many species in New Zealand that's all we know giant flightless rails and giant ducks and giant geese and all these different moa. We don't know anything about their colours, their behaviour, their calls, their, you know, their nesting. So there's so much that we've lost and there are probably more species than we think because there are some of our New Zealand birds that look identical in their skeletons mm. and we'd only be able to tell them apart from DNA and we haven't done that DNA work in a lot of species. So if, if you said there's no real example, we don't know what colour more were, mm. if Māori were here first, mm. none of their feathers have been incorporated into cloaks and that kind of stuff? No, the feathers wouldn't. We thought there have been some thoughts at, at times, or oh, maybe that's a more feather. No, feathers don't last long enough. We don't have any cloaks that are older than a few hundred years. Oh, okay. Yeah, I know. And that's the thing. We've got 
cloak specialists that have been looking. And at one point we thought, this is them. This, this cloak's made of more feathers. Uh, and then they DNA tested them and found they were emu feathers oh, wow. from Governor Gray's private menagerie on, uh, on the island up north. Uh, and someone had harvested all of those emu feathers and made a, made a cloak out of them. But no, the, we've got a few traces of feather that have survived in dry caves and overhangs in central Otago mostly. And we've got, um, but imagine trying to do a jigsaw puzzle when you've got a 3,000 you know, piece jigsaw puzzle when you've got five pieces. Yeah. Uh, it's very hard to, they've tried to estimate colours and patterns. So and when you see a, a representation of a moor in yeah. a museum, it's a best guess? It's a best guess. Um, the best we know now is that some of them seem to have had maybe spotted kiwi-like patterns on them. Some were darker, some of the feathers are more purple. But we don't know the colour of their beaks, their claws, their feet, whether they had patches of skin, bare skin, like some of the, you know. But even a cassowary, you know, if you've seen a, a, a New Guinea or a North Australian cassowary, it's got that big helmet on its head. Yeah. But it's got all that blue skin and bare skin on its let's face. Let's have a look. Let's bring it up for people who don't know. The I know. It's got yeah. that kind of big crown of bone. It's got a crown. You can see the crown. You can see the crown. How's it spelled? Uh, cassowary. C-A-S-S-O. So a cassowary, if I, and I looked at a lot of cassowary skeletons, and yeah, wary, that's it. Uh, yeah, I've seen a lot of cassowary skeletons, but if you bring up a photo of one, you can see that it's got, yeah, look at them. So they've got these dangling, they've got the helmets all covered by an extra layer of keratin, so it's even bigger. It's got lots of bare blue skin, it's got these big dangly lumps um, and wattles hanging from it. It's all this ornamental, um, beautiful ornamental. The, the feathers, those feathers do look kind of blue purple don't they yeah yeah yeah. so, so if you so if we just had the bone we'd know that it we had wouldn't a helmet know, of we some wouldn't kind. know the, the dangly no no pink bits nope we wouldn't know the color nope nope so we would know there was something on the head but we didn't th- we wouldn't think it was that big so all of that stuff is not we can't tell from the fossil record so if you imagine what more might have looked like yeah who knows and this is a big issue in paleontology at the moment they're doing this with dinosaurs as well um, people have been very conservative in their reconstructions of dinosaurs. So Jurassic Park, they just had those raptors with just bare skin like a reptile. Mm. But now we know that a lot of dinosaurs had feathers and we're now coming up with all sorts of amazing reconstructions of dinosaurs that said, well, let's be, let's base, the, if dinosaurs were like living animals, they'd be covered in feathers and lumps and spikes and prongs <laughs> and wattles and all sorts of incredible things. Well, that, I mean, you talk about Jurassic Park. Yeah. That was one of the first times, maybe probably the first time, if I'm honest, I'd ever yeah. heard the theory of, you know... Birds and dinosaurs. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. What, and is that pretty much um, oh, standard? Yeah. That's, that's standard. That's, yeah, that's belief that's, now? That's, oh, no, yeah, that's, that's pretty standard. Uh, there are still a couple of holdouts that are not a fan. Mm. We're going to watch Jurassic Park now. I don't think we're plugged oh, into the audio. Kid. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I mean, we could watch that, YouTube clips. We could watch pirated YouTube clips from Jurassic Park if you want. <laughs> this is when we hear noise the kid with the... With oh, the, the yeah, and he brings the bone out and <laughs> slices yeah, yeah. it across the stomach. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is this like I, your favourite movie? <laughs> well, you know, I mean, a lot of that speculation too. The problem is that this was, this was, a, a, this was a, on, on point when it was made, but it's not taken on any of the recent stuff we know about dinosaurs. So the dinosaurs in the latest, all the, all the later versions look exactly the same. Right. And yet we've moved on. We know that those raptors would have been completely feathered, for example. Wow. Yeah, yeah. That's even more terrifying. Yeah. See a big massive chicken with those teeth flying at you. Oh, man, you know. <laughs> you know, some people think, oh, they're just scary when they're feathered. Yeah, I don't know. If you've ever been charged by a goose, you'd, you'd, know, you'd disagree. My kids have, and I thought it was hilarious. Yeah. yeah. Oh. They didn't like well, it when, you, when, you're t- when you're two feet tall, it's not as hilarious, <laughs> I'll tell you right now. Uh, so 
we uh, we now it's very well established that birds not aren't just descended from dinosaurs; they are dinosaurs. They're the only branch of the dinosaur family tree so that survived. So just say that again. Birds aren't just descended from dinosaurs; they, they literally are, are dinosaurs. They're the only surviving dinosaurs. Right. All the other dinosaurs went extinct when. The, what about like the, yeah. the the talk about the crocodile and the alligator and that? No, kind they're of stuff? they're the reptiles. They're, okay. they're a side side branch of the tree. Right. Dinosaurs are a type of reptile, and so I guess birds are a type of reptile, really. But no one pushes that too much. Yeah. But yeah, birds are the only a few in that mass extinction of all the dinosaurs. A few birds got through, and that was it. That was this. They were small enough and warm-blooded enough to be able to cope with that huge cooling and darkness for years. And they are all the descended. So all the birds today are descended from those. Jace, Google something like um, the dinosaurs were birds. Yeah, and just see what if we get any images or videos that come up showing dinosaurs with feathers and stuff because that'd be interesting to look yeah, at. Yeah. This, I mean, I can feel your kind of, it's, it's, when you talk about this, I can feel the excitement. Yeah, do a Google image search. There we go. Yeah, so you can see now there's some, oh, that looks like Emma Willoughby's art here. She's wonderful. There's some really good paleo artists now that are showing. So that um, looks like a T-Rex. Is that a that, T-Rex? That's a, that's a big carnosaur. Yep. That's With right. feathers. Yep. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Some of these are more there, but a lot of the raptors and so forth. Now, is this a, again? But yeah, the, that's this reasonable. Is, this yeah. is an interpretation, sure. not a. There's lots of different interpretations. You always want to look at about half a dozen of these yeah. because they're different artists' ideas. Um, but yeah, there's some there with big crests and combs. That's cool. That's an Archaeopteryx. That's actually a flying. That's the first. So up until let's yeah. say we're talking in the 70s and 80s, that yeah. that dinosaur. Well, that what we're looking at there. Well, that thing you've got right now is Archaeopteryx, which is the, the first bird ever fossil ever found, okay. the earliest bird fossil from the 19th century. And that's really that we know pretty much what that looked like because the feather traces were preserved. Right. Yeah. I was going to say, okay, let's just scroll back down, Jason. Yeah, scroll back down. So, 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 so one ones. of the ones that have now got feathers on them, yeah, yeah. if that if that dinosaur had been painted, drawn, whatever, yep, in the yep. 1970s, it would have had reptile skin. It would have been. In fact, it would have been what they call shrink-wrapped, which is you just basically take the skeleton, stick some muscles on it, and then lay, layer the skin over the top. Right. Um, and... That's pretty much how modern reptiles. Oh, there's are built. a pigeon. <laughs> yeah, there you go. That's pretty much how modern reptiles look. But um, mammals, it wouldn't work like that because we've got layers of you know fat and fur and yeah. all sorts of things like us mammals. Yeah. And now they're starting to say, well, you know that whole shrink wrap thing that doesn't really work for dinosaurs. Let's try and make them more like real animals, and so it gives them you much more freedom to come up with hypotheses with, with think about you know, what would a dinosaur might have looked like and then so much of this is speculation but it's reasonable speculation I think uh, what I think is unrealistic is just being super conservative and saying well we don't know that they had any of these features so we won't put any features on them so paleo art's really a really interesting field and it's been getting rapidly much more interesting in the last 10 15 years as, yep. pe as people have been playing around with these ideas yeah it's really it's it's fascinating yeah it's and what about the uh, so so it's what you what what i hear you saying is it sounds yeah. like we got it wrong from 30 years ago when we were drawing them in the shrink wrap yeah yeah but now we're making best guesses we're saying it could be this mm, or mm. are they saying they definitely are birds or come from birds or joined with birds oh they're definitely a type of bird so therefore yeah. even though we're still guessing now this is probably a closer representation but, but the best thing is is that we're now starting to get actual fossil evidence we're getting right. so emma willoughby there her gallery is, is just wonderful she's a really worth looking up i love her raptor reconstructions um but nowadays we're now starting some, some amazing fossil deposits in china and around the rest of the world they are fine enough that we're getting feather traces in some of these dinosaur skeletons so we're getting small dinosaurs where we can actually see the feathers on them. Okay. Uh, and other species where we can see traces of quills and spikes. 
So there's a lot more fossil evidence for feathers now than there used to be, and that's really starting to inform um, some of our reconstructions. And, you know, what we can see is we all little dinosaurs in this group had feathers and little dinosaurs in that group way over there had feathers, yep. so everything in between them which would have been feathered as well. They when you say in this group and this group, are you talking timeline-wise? Time talking or? distant, distant branches of the same family okay. tree. So that really, we can make a lot of inferences and says, that, well, that means everything in between must have had feathers too, including something like T-Rex. It's impossible to imagine, but, you know, mm. where they had feathers as an adult, maybe the juveniles had feathers and they lost them as they got big. Maybe T-Rex had a little coating of down all over it. Maybe it had big display feathers on its little arms or yep. something. All sorts of interesting questions. Um, and so that's that sort of paleo art, that sort of reconstruction, I think, is fascinating. But we haven't done that for New Zealand. Nobody has tried to be as adventurous and creative with New Zealand uh, fossil species. So, do you mean like um, well, we want to see an artist that has the more um, yeah. dressed up like the Cassowera? Yeah, a bit or look at you look at something like imagine something like a you know a saddleback, for example. Yeah. No. If you think of a saddleback and you're in the bush and you're lucky enough to be in a nature reserve, one of the things you notice, it's got that big, colourful, rusty patch on its back. It's got these wattles on the side of its beak and it has this big call. It's really loud and ricochets through the forest. Now, none of that stuff you could tell from a skeleton. Right. If you just had a, if we saddlebacks were extinct and all we had was a skeleton, we'd just think, oh, they're kind of like a bit like a thrush or a blackbird. Maybe we'll just make them black or something. And so what I want to see is people taking these. Let's hear it. Let's hear the the, the words. There we go. Yeah. And so all those features that we're looking at in that video of a saddleback, the wattles, the black patch, the call, um, that's all stuff that wouldn't fossilise. So when you say be more adventurous, I guess what I'm thinking is, are we just going, let's go crazy and do whatever we want, or are you saying try and attain a more accurate representation yep. but if you don't have anything other than a skeleton how do you do that anyway right well you can look at the most cl- the closest relatives yep. obviously and try and triangulate and figure out well these have right. these features these have these features what's a plausible suite of features that it should have you should have something there rather than nothing ditto if we were trying to reconstruct what the bush sounded like a thousand years ago well, we've got all of these other calling birds that we that are extinct that we should probably try and factor in somehow. We need to come up with some sort of call for them because they wouldn't have been sitting there silent. Yeah. So the bush at night would have been a lot more noisy than it is now. And we can try and, you know, piece together the surviving birds that we do know and add some and calls in for the ones that we don't. We don't know what more sounded like, but they were probably pretty loud. So a lot of it is trying to give an impressionistic view of what the species of the forest would have looked like. And it's a, it's a really interesting exercise, and I would love to see artists pairing up with ornithologists and paleontologists to put together some of these hypotheses. And we're really trying to evoke rather than scientifically create the reconstruction. So if I put you together with an artist, mm-hmm. and do you have a – like if I said shut your eyes, do you have a picture in your head as to what you think the moa – might have looked like mm. or you think that it did look like could you describe that to an artist and could an artist then do a representation of that yeah but the thing that the best thing would be is if we we and the artist meet halfway yep so i try and sketch out and i can draw a little bit but i would try and make a whole bunch of sketches and get some notes down visually mm-hmm. and the artist i want to take the artist to the zoo and say let's go watch emu or cassowary for a day and you feel get a feel for how they move and their shape and how their feathers hang 
Um, and what I feel sad about is that often I see something like a computer animated more, for example, that even someone like Weta have done. And I just shake my head because it's pretty obvious that the programmers and artists that put that together have never bothered to just go and watch an actual live bird for a day. Right. You know, it's so obvious. They've got no weight to them, no heft. The feathers don't hang. The birds usually kind of um, shrink-wrapped and skinny. They don't have any of the bulk and shagginess that a real live bird does. And so I would say the first thing, if you want to do paleo art, is you go and actually spend some time with real live animals and get a feel for them and then think, okay, now we're going to extrapolate upwards. You know, how big, what, what would a big moa have felt like? Would you have been able to hear it as it came walking towards you? Mm. How fast would it have been able to move and tilt its head? How cumbersome would it have been? Um, and that starts to inform the art as well. So I, I, I love working with artists and I like it when we can all meet halfway. They learn some ornithology and get a feel for the birds. And I try and express, you know, some of the, the different colours and shapes and so forth that I think we could play with when there is like a, a movie a creation or a yeah. you know something in technology for entertainment do they often get involved like you're talking about Weta and Weta are legendary mm, in lots yep. of areas do they often get people like yourself or involved because they want to do this like I remember watching it might have been the whenever the new series of Planet of the Apes came out you know when it was late 90s yeah. I remember watching yeah. the making of it and I, I vividly remember them doing a session where they had chimps with them in the room and, and mm, the actors nice. were watching them move and watching them do things and watching them you know getting getting that down so they could mimic them so uh, I, I would hope that if you're putting something yeah. in the digital world you well would you would think so that. wouldn't you and particularly since scientists work really cheap and sometimes the production companies um just get the scientist in as a consultant and don't even pay them mm. you know they're spending millions on this movie budget and they think oh we'll get the we, the academics will work for free won't they <laughs> uh, but it makes such a difference so um, there was a recent Richard Attenborough, um, sorry, David Attenborough um, documentary set in the British Museum where the exhibits come to life and there was a mower there and there was a giant eagle and it was painful. It All was right. painfully obvious that the person that animated this giant eagle just took a basic golden eagle and scaled it up a bit. And so anyone who'd worked with those eagles, I could have told them in five minutes they would have all t that's all they would have needed. I would have done it for free. Five minutes, say, man, you've got to make the beak about 50% longer than that. Mm. And where's that color coming from? And, you know, so that would have been you know, pretty easy to get that right. Um, and I do wonder sometimes, it does seem like some of these animators and artists, except for really good people like Willoughby and whatnot, they're not paying any attention. They just treat it, here's another job. Like we did a bus yesterday and we're going to do a mower today. <laughs> and, you know, Bing, 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 got deadlines. We can't, you know, mess around having meetings with scientists and sketching pictures out. We're just going to do it, churn it out. Um, and so I would want to see a bit more humility and from them and a bit more wanting to actually work with the people who deeply know the field these, the, for these things. Um, and there are some people who are doing it right, but it's, I see so often it being done really badly. Talking about like the Jurassic Park idea, probably 10, 15 years ago, mm -hmm. there was a news story about recreating the mammoth. Oh, yeah. Getting yeah. mammoth DNA yeah. and, you know, putting it in with, with I guess, elephants and then making yeah. a, a hybrid and, and, and trying to bring the mammoth yeah. back. Uh, if that's possible, mm. would you. Would you support, let's say, the the rebuilding, the remaking, the recreating of a moor? Would you like to see them come back? Well, that's a big jump from a mammoth to a moor. 
Um, so let's just start with the mammoth. Yeah. What you're doing is, and, and even the geneticists that are working on these projects say, well, we're not actually bringing the mammoth back. What we're doing is we're taking, we might be able to take a few of the genes that make mammoths hairy or mm. give them a bit of, you know, the long tusks and stick those into an elephant genome and then breed an elephant that's got sort of long hair and tusks. So it's a hairy, long tusked yeah, elephant. Which isn't than exactly the same, is no. it? As bringing back. And then I think anyone would, would say they'd feel a bit cheated if they said, here's your mammoth. <laughs> and, and the problem is, of course, elephants have incredibly long generation times. And this would take many, many years. And we are pretty bad at doing artificial insemination of elephants there and so go. forth. There's a story there. So, Scientists yeah. successfully insert woolly mammoth DNA. DNA into another, yeah, so yeah. what? You know, and I don't think it actually worked properly anyway. So they didn't get an embryo to term or anything. Yeah. Um, so there's a, the best you're going to have is you have some sort of weird genetically modified elephant that looked a bit like a mammoth. Right. Whether it would actually fulfill the same functions as a mammoth or act the same or feed the same. Well, as, as, can, you've, as you've just said, what does a mammoth sound like? Yeah, How did yeah, they, yeah, you yeah. Know, those things may not be yeah. covered off. And, and so that's the, best, that's the best scenario we have. And this only works because actually we've got quite a long history of doing genetic modification and artificial insemination of mammals but not birds. Birds are much um, harder because okay. birds don't have this nice simple egg. The birds have an egg with a shell on. And so we would be in immediately, it's a 10 times as hard position to do anything with a bird, no matter how big or small it is. Moa would be even harder because what would you, if you could maybe do it with a small moa, you could use maybe an ostrich or an emu, but it's really difficult to find a hybrid surrogate because, you know, mammoths are very closely related to living elephants, right. but nothing is very closely related right. to a moa. There are no relatives. So if you just tried to stick some more DNA into an ostrich or an emio, the whole thing would fall apart mm. because those things, it's like saying, oh, let's get some you know, rabbit DNA and stick it into a human and see what happens. I mean, apart from it being a horrific image, nothing <laughs> would happen. It just couldn't work. Everything would just collapse at the first time attempt the cell to try and divide because because just, they're too far down. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're not related. They're too far away from each other. Yeah, yeah. There's just the whole thing just falls apart immediately, and that's what would happen with with stick, trying to stick more DNA into an emu. So there's a real problem. We've got no living close relatives of more. Uh, there, there are other possibilities for some other things, like there may be some of the extinct New Zealand quail. Could maybe you could get some of its DNA into a living Australian button quail. It's not a very sexy project, is it? Mm. Uh, and you end up with a small brown quail that's slightly different from the small brown quails that we currently have in New Zealand, which come from Australia. What about a huia? I'd love to see the huia. Uh, yeah, yeah. Again, uh, we've got kolkako and saddlebacks as sort of relatives, but not that close. And we might be able to genetically modify a kokako and to make it black and give it a long beak. But why would we do this? You know, yeah, what's the right. point? It's not bringing back the huia. So you're what, it sounds like actually what you're saying is yeah. you, you're not really about that. that no, and it's a sad thing is that people get, first of all, people get all super exercised about this and think, what are the ethical and um, you know spiritual considerations of bringing back the huia? Well, we're not bringing back the huia, so we don't have any ethical or spiritual considerations. Um, and I've never said the spiritual considerations. Oh, actually, back there's, a there's actually there's there's been some objections from from Iwi about what are we oh, doing okay. messing around with who we are. This is our sacred. This is our sacred tongue. Yeah, yeah. Why aren't we involved in this process? Fair point. Yeah. Um, they tend to, yeah Iwi tend to get left out of these conversations. Uh, but when they have had the conversations, Iwi have said, "Whoa, now back off, mate." And fair enough too. But we're not actually bringing back who we are. And some people have said, "Well, you know." does this mean that we can let these things go extinct and just bring them back later, put them on ice, put a few cells on ice and we'll just bring them back? No, it's not going to work like that. We can't use that to get out of, mm. you know, can't, as an escape from species extinction, sorry. So it's an interesting, this is when I talk about this stuff, what is interesting is that if we tried, say, 
let's do an experiment. We tried to put some more DNA into an emu. Well, to be able to do that, we'd actually have to develop a whole lot of technology for recovering ancient DNA from bones Mm -hmm. and putting it into a living cell and finding a way for that to work with birds, bird eggs, and developing that technology. It's like, you know, sending people into space. It wasn't actually that important that people walked on the moon, but amazing side effects from technology and infrastructure and aerospace that we got. What that would enable us to do is, if we could do that, actually, then we would also be able to do things like recover tiny bits of DNA from a kakapo skin in a museum right. and take some of the genes from that and put it into the genes of living kakapo, right. which are incredibly inbred and have massive egg fertility problems because there's no genetic variation there. Right. So if we could rescue some of that genetic variation and f- build it into living kakapo, we could make a much more diverse, healthy kakapo genome so that's a real possible conservation so that's benefit. A, that's a bit of a, that's almost the byproduct of, yeah, of yeah. the exercise. That's, that's is a more byproduct. important. And that's actually why this sort of research is happening. It's not scientists are trying to figure out ways to bring back more. They're trying to say how do we understand how birds reproduce, how can and how can we do incorporate how can we recover G, uh, DNA from an old bone or a museum specimen? And can that be factored into a, a living bird embryo? So there'll be all sorts of really important conservation side effects and be able to rescue some almost mm. extinct species with this technology. That's going to be far more important and happen far sooner than any sort of bringing back of an extinct thing. But that never gets talked about because everyone's media in particular are all fixated on, oh, will the moa bring back? Where will the moa live? You know, what do we feed them? How much will we charge? And um, yeah, well, let's worry about this in 100 years' time. What do we feed them? Oh, we just feed them what's already in the bush. But what was they? What were they? So you say they weren't a danger to us. So were they meat eaters? They're not. No, they're all herbivores, and we actually, yeah. And actually, what we we know quite a bit about what more ate because a we've found some stomach contents preserved in swamps, and b um, folks like Jamie Wood down here in in Otago have been finding freeze dried more poo in caves and rock shelters which you can pick apart and look for the traces of leaves and pollen and seeds. So we've been able to reconstruct the diet of them quite well. It was quite varied. Some of them had big, tough shearing beaks where they could just chop vegetation off twigs and eat and grind it up with stones that they swallowed. Mm -hmm. And some of them were plucking flowers and berries and delicate leaves up in the subalpine high country. So quite a varied diet. But, you know, there's nothing, nothing there that's impossible. If we can keep takahe and kakapo alive, we can certainly keep more alive. <laughs> In theory. Yeah. Um, the other thing that we wanted to have a chat with you about while you were here sure. is kind of what you're doing at the moment. Um, so you, th- this is obviously what you do, but it's kind of what you used to do. You don't yeah, yeah. work at Whanganui hos- ah, Hospital, sorry, museum, <laughs> museum anymore. anymore. No. Well, when I was at Whanganui, uh, I was finding that it's, it's frustrating being in a small regional museum because it's very hard to reach people. Not many people come to Whanganui. You can put on exhibits, but not many people are going to see them. And I was passionate about conservation and outreach and trying to communicate some of the science and work that's being done in New Zealand to the public. Uh, so I'd sometimes write articles for the newspaper. But again, the Whanganui Chronicle, bless its heart, um, doesn't have a huge readership. So I was thinking, well, how can I get some of this research and facts out there? and realise, oh, you know, Wikipedia articles. Anyone can edit a Wikipedia article Mm -hmm. and you can cite New Zealand research in there and update them and improve them. And so I started doing that in my spare time and then started looking at, you know, well, geez, the coverage of New Zealand on Wikipedia is pretty bad. So we organised a community Wikipedia editing group just to work on the Whanganui-related pages and try and improve those. And I organised a couple of just volunteer get-togethers and meetups and editathons and whatnot, and was realising that the stuff I was doing there was actually having probably more outreach impact than what I was doing during the day. 
doing writing for the newspaper or doing exhibitions. Um, and at that point, and I'd been editing Wikipedia for a few years then, I realised that the Wikimedia Foundation, which runs Wikipedia and all the other projects like that, mm-hmm. have an annual grants process. They're all funded by donations, but they always get more money than they, they, can, they need, so they use it to try and get uh, folks around the world to engage with communities better, particularly developing countries. But I also realised no they never funded anything in New Zealand before. So I just applied for a grant and said I would be happy to be a Wikipedian for a year and just work with all institutions all around New Zealand and be on the road uh, and try and educate them as to how they can engage with Wikipedia better mm-hmm. and teach, train people up and run community events and whatnot. And they said, yep, sure. So I'm, my official title is Wikipedian at large, which is I think the first time they've ever had that. They, they, they thought that was a pretty cool job title. So you were the, you basically, for want of a better word, yeah. working for or on behalf of Wikipedia, yeah. teaching people about how to use it and yeah. then helping them use it. Yeah. So you're kind of training people to be the ones who edit the pages. Yeah, yeah. it's all edited by volunteers. Yeah. Uh, but we don't have a big volunteer community here in New Zealand doing it. Um, so we're trying to just catch up by running public events and meetups and training people up. But at the same time, I'm also embedded inside an institution of one kind or another. So I've been in Dunedin a few days now and I'm working at the Otago Museum. Mm -hmm. And they have a huge collection of photographs of their beautiful collection objects, which are currently all just sort of sitting on servers. They're not all available. But we are working to do a bulk upload of just today. We're going to work on doing hundreds of them and releasing them into Wikimedia Commons under an open license so anyone can use them and then they can then be used on Wikipedia pages or for anything else. So a lot of it is... So it becomes kind of an open source resource. Exactly. So I've currently been working with institutions like the National Library and the Auckland Museum to help them navigate this whole process because it's pretty new to many museums. They're just not used to this idea that there's now easy ways that you could make all these beautiful collection images open mm-hmm. and give them, you know, get the public in New Zealand using them. And so I walk them through that process and they have to figure out their copyright policy and we do a bulk upload. And generally it's been pretty positive. There's been lots of institutions that are really intrigued by this and are trying to move in this way. So. And I, I guess if it's places like museums, et cetera, they're not really a commercial entity. No, so, no. so making them open source, making them available yeah, is, yeah. as you say, that's kind of spreading the word and reaching more people. That's the primary goal, and many of these are publicly funded as well. Mm-hmm. So there's a good case to be made that if the public have paid for the collection of all of these photographs, all their scanning, digitization, they actually own them, and so they have, you know, they've got a right to be able to see and use them. And previously, it's been a, a problem because museums are just, you know, a building with stuff in it, and you used to just have to go to the museum to see anything there. But that cuts out a huge audience from not just New Zealand but all around the world. Um, and so many museums are now in gallery, art galleries and libraries and archives are embracing this as suddenly they thought, this is a tool, this is how we can meet our mission, which is to make our collections as available as possible. And so they've hooked into Wikipedia as a resource to do this, but also sites like Wikimedia Commons, which is the mm-hmm. image library for Wikipedia, mm-hmm. all those you know, over 50 million openly usable images there and projects new now like Wikidata which is an open structured database it's like the card catalogue of Wikipedia so libraries are really interested in this as well because they love you know cataloguing stuff but every different library and museum has a different catalogue system and they're realising this open freely editable thing called Wikidata can link those all together so I'm talking with a lot of institutions about getting in that too 
And what do you uh, completely, completely sideways uh, question? Yeah. But because it's wiki, what do you think of the WikiLeaks situation? Do you have any kind of thoughts around that? I got nothing. Still nothing to do with Wikipedia. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. I sometimes people say, "What do you think about WikiLeaks?" WikiLeaks. I mean, Wikipedia's not going to sue him, but that has nothing to do with Wikipedia or the Wikipedia Foundation. The word wiki is now sort of in the general lexicon meaning meaning dictionary or meaning group of ideas. Literally, if you want to say what wiki, wiki is a Polynesian word. If you, uh, Jace, if you look up wiki wiki bus, show us a picture of a wiki wiki bus. Um, They're the buses that at Honolulu Airport, there you go, wiki wiki shuttle. They're the buses that take you between the terminals in Honolulu Airport because wiki is Hawaiian for quick. And so a wiki wiki bus is a super quick bus. Um, and when they were developing software that let you edit web pages quickly, mm-hmm. they called it wiki software. That's the classic wiki wiki bus picture. Um, yeah. The irony being that this picture is uh, on Wikipedia. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's no, a wiki wiki on wiki. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> so this became, I mean, some of the open software people love this because it means you can just set up a site and then anyone can come along and edit it. And that's how it all started. So, And still people, you know, you'll find a wiki on a company's intranet or something like that if they're developing their health and safety policy. Yeah. So everyone can edit it. And the idea of making an encyclopedia that ran using a wiki Back in about 2001, it was seen as a complete ridiculous idea. Like, how can you possibly make an encyclopedia that anyone can, mm-hmm. can edit? Um, and it was, you know, it was, a, it was a bit of a joke for the first couple of years. And then it just took off and went bananas. And there's some nice graphs there on the size of Wikipedia and how many millions of articles it now has. Um, yeah, it's pretty impressive. So, But that, uh, word, that word wiki now, like, I, yeah. I mean, I'm, I don't know if you're into it, but a lot of people are excited about Game of Thrones starting next week. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, you look up Game of Thrones and it'll have a wiki on the character. And that's yeah, just yeah. how it's referenced now, meaning a, a, a storage of information on yeah, this yeah, character. Yeah. Not uh, necessarily on Wikipedia. No, no, no. Yeah. Anyone can start up a wiki on anything. They can just download the software and start it up on their own site. The key thing about a wiki is that any fan can edit it. So if you... Right. It's not the official website for Game of Thrones it's a fan based Correct, one yeah. so the Game of Thrones wiki sorry is very cool and that Game of Thrones has thousands and thousands of fans who have read all the books and memorised them and if there's any mistake or any problem in that article you'll have a hundred people immediately coming in to fix it so that's the power of a wiki is that if you have enough editors and Wikipedia has about a quarter of a million regular editors they will all collectively pull their expertise to iron out bugs or fact check things or put references in. So that I didn't know that. So that means if you're going to officially kind of be a wiki, whatever yeah. that is, yeah. it needs to be editable by the people using the that's, site. Yeah, it's the power of it. The oh. more the more people, the better. So that's why Wikipedia surprisingly works as well as it does. How accurate is Wikipedia? Pretty good. I mean, I think it's comp in, in the areas that the mainstream areas, yeah. like the where you'd expect an encyclopedia to be working. Yeah. it's absolutely comparable with a traditional encyclopedia or a textbook in its accuracy. As soon as you wander off the mainstream or you get out of the comfort zone of many of the editors who are pretty Northern Hemisphere American types, Mm -hmm. it gets worse. So the coverage of New Zealand is not as good as it should be, Uh, particularly, you know, the coverage of other countries, non-Western countries, not as good as it could be. And the English Wikipedia, I mean, there are Wikipedias in other languages too. It's in about 300 languages. So that's the big problem with New Zealand is that we would like the articles covering us, which is a pretty much our face on the world, yeah. to be as accurate and deep and, and detailed as the ones for the UK or North America. 
and uh, they're not and it's it's a lot of gaps and problems it's just because we haven't had that big base of volunteer editors and that's here. what that's what you're kind of well, trying to correct I'm, I'm trying to build that up is it know. your full-time gig like that's your yeah, paycheck yeah, yeah. that's your everything that's my paycheck from on a one-year contract i'm actually about nine months into it so, so you've got a few months to go a few months to go so and you go to a location like you've come to Dunedin. and you're, yeah. it seems like you're here for a couple of weeks i'm actually here for the rest of the month right. and right into may um and I'll be based at the museum there, but I'm also running some uh, workshops and presentations at the university and at the anatomy school and running some public Wikipedia events too. I'm going to have an editathon on New Zealand prehistory, you know, my personal passion, uh, and one on the history of Dunedin and the Otago Museum. And anyone can come along to those and learn how to edit and take part. So, And I know if people Google the events finder and look, look at yeah. your name, that, that um, editathon <laughs> is up there as well. Yeah, um, yeah. What about on Wikipedia when why why do some pages get locked down? Oh yeah. Like you can't edit them. Well, you can still. I mean, there's a sort of semi-protection which can be imposed on a page, which means that to edit it, you have to have had like a been on Wikipedia for a few days. Mm-hmm. Right. And you've had to have made about ten edits. Which seems a pretty low bar, but actually that screens out about ninety percent of the drive by vandalism. Right. So vandalism on Wikipedia is mostly just like school kids trying to put a rude word in there, and they say, oh, "Look, look, look what I did, mate! I put rude into." And 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 they, but that's often actually caught by software within about thirty seconds or so. That'll take out most of the swear words and anything slightly more sophisticated. A human editor will usually on vandalism patrol, as it's called, will be just automatically checking edits each day and seeing if anything looks a bit dodgy. Though. And that's all voluntary? Yep, all voluntary. Wow. There's thousands of people just doing vandalism patrol. And they take out the thousands of, of dodgy vandalistic edits. But if there's a page that's really in the news, um, or it's about Donald Trump or something, mm. they will semi-protect that page just to cut down on that random vandalism. And they can ramp up, or they can even lock down a page for editing if there's something some massive um, fight going on at the moment about it. Like some kind of attack on it for some person who's yeah. like, like a like – a, I was trying to think of someone's name – like a Ben Shapiro or something gets a yeah. massive attack on us yeah. thing. they yeah. can lock it down. Yeah, and the editors – that's all just, again, that's that's not from the top down. That's just a bunch of editors, or, which is anyone who just types, hits the edit button, get together and so, discuss so it. So is there a, a hierarchy of editors? So there's like – Not top, really, top no. Down. No. So you're an editor, and then when they realise – at some point they realise we need to have people who can also delete pages delete articles as well as create them and so we had to create this class called admin which is just someone who has the power to delete a page or block someone from editing boot them off wikipedia for a bit that's about the only power they have and that's just voted in by other editors mm-hmm. someone puts their name forward and says oh i've been around wikipedia for a few years now and they can anyone can look at their track record and say yep you've been a pretty good editor you've helped solve problems and been constructive and never gotten fights uh, we'll push the admin button and you can become an admin and now you've just got this slight extra power to block people and so if there's a big problem in a page someone will call in an admin whatever we've got a couple of admins in new zealand um, and they'll just come in and try and sort it out. Usually it's diplomacy rather than anything else. But sometimes persistent vandals can just get blocked. That's about it. That's about the hierarchy. Um, everything else, the Wikimedia Foundation is pretty hands-off. Though They just run the software and the servers. Yeah. And so all of these, there's lots of you know, rules and guidelines and style guides and acronyms. It's actually quite thoroughly developed. But that's all been developed from the ground up by the random volunteers. 
So it's quite a thing. So it really to look is at. a community and a community yeah. looking after it. Yeah, yeah. It's every and all of the structure has been has grown organically from um, just the random volunteers, thousands and thousands of volunteers, which is a really interesting thing to think about because they started off trying to write Wikipedia as an encyclopedia, the mm. way you would normally like you get a an editorial board and you commission a bunch of articles from experts and so forth, and it was a disaster. I mean, it took so long; they just couldn't get anything written. Um, and but that's the only way that people knew to develop a huge project like that. Mm-hmm. So if we look at your Wikipedia article, Pat, right, for example, so can we just say first of all, yes, I was working, uh, you know, several years ago on News Talk ZB. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have no idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How this page got up? Okay. I, I didn't. I didn't put no, no, no. it there. No, and you can't. It just popped no. up. Yeah, it does. Now, you why? Shortland Street. <laughs> where do Wikipedia articles come from? That's right. So this is a stub. This is a pretty basic sketch. Of an article, and it's, it's got, out, and it's out of date. Yeah, it's out of date. I know. Now the thing is, first of all, you can't Whoa, mess with that. What just happened then. You just, you just made it narrow. If you could, oh, wide, okay. if you could narrow that, um, Jason, make the text a bit larger, that'd be great. Uh, so I can read it. Yep. So it's pretty sketchy. Um, now this would all be sourced from publicly available information. So any interview that's been done with you, or you've been covered in the new in the news, or something like that. Scroll down. And let's look at the uh, references, Jason. Podcasting, acting, yeah, there's not much. There's a public statement about leaving Radio Rima in 2012. There's a shortened street actors database. But there's almost no No. decent published information. So it's pretty sketchy. But what would happen is that someone would have had a list of, say, New Zealand broadcasters with a couple of citations for them. And they would have just run down the list and created articles, boom, 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 automatically. As soon as someone reaches a certain level of coverage in the media – then there is enough publicly available sources to build a biography of them in Wikipedia, and eventually some volunteer will get around to doing that. That's just oh. part of the job. It just happens, sort of happens automatically. Now, yours, I mean, you can't touch it, mate, because you've got a conflict of interest. No one's allowed to mess with their own Wikipedia article. Otherwise, how, how do people know? Well, how do people know? Sometimes they, they create an account and they log services and they just say, oh, I know everything about myself and I'm going to fix this, and they'll just get blocked. But, I mean, it's possible you could try and, be, try and get away with doing it anonymously and whatnot right. if you're a bit of a saddo. So I, so I can't do anything about this. You should probably what if I want it removed? Uh, you can actually petition Wikipedia, but they're going to say, well, there are special cases in which people can get an article taken down. But generally, if you have a public profile, uh, then um, you're going to get a Wikipedia article appearing eventually. It's so like what, saying, if you're, what if you're like, man, at some stage I had a very, 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 very insignificant and small public profile yeah. working as a talkback host, sure. right? Yeah. Like 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 bottom of the barrel, youngest person at ZB, yeah, yeah, yeah. nothing about me said no, profile, no. but now I don't. Yeah, well, you know, historically, I'd say this page, no, not wanting to, to, to rain on your on your wiki parade, this is a pretty marginal article, and I would say if I'd saw, seen this proposed, I, it's been flagged back in 2017. They're saying, man, there just aren't enough re- references here. Yeah, we should get rid of it. Well, you could, you, um, anyone could come along and flag this and say this person's not notable in the terms of Wikipedia. There's not enough published about. I agree. An article. <laughs> so they and sometimes <laughs> they will. They just when the podcast gets huge. Thousands. Well, that's the thing. I mean, I would it could go two ways. We could either say, oh man, just flat, just just nominate this for deletion because there's not enough published. And that would probably be approved, and they and they just they, they take down thousands of pages a day because oh, there's no. We'll references. do that. You could, well, or, or, or you know, jump, or someone would come along and say, "Well, no, you know, Pat has had some profile, and maybe there was an interview with you for the local paper or something, or maybe there's something, some coverage. Maybe you have crossed that notability threshold, 
and there should be an article about you just as a public I just figure. think it's weird. It's weird, isn't it? I know. I, I think got, it's Someone weird. made one about me last year because I suddenly was being interviewed by the newspapers about this gig, and so someone, as a favour, said, oh, well, you have you? to be on it. You're a Wikipedia. Well, no, no, not necessarily. I hadn't reached that, that, that threshold. Um, and so now I've got one, and it's basically accurate. That's fine. I, I just try not to look at it because I've, what I could do is if you – Look at that. Look, you've even got a photo. So I know, mine, I know. Mine's so insignificant I don't even have a photo. Well, you know, I would say that that, that was from a photo session they did for North and South um, when they covered me at the Auckland Museum. So yours is, yours is significant. Yeah, that's Look right. All that. It's got references and everything. And they've, and I what I did is I went to my talk page, which exists behind the scenes, and I said, uh, okay, this all looks cool. Um, if you wanted, anyone wanted to expand this article, here's some actual references that are cover more stuff than there's a lot of stuff missing from here. Here's some references, go for it, or don't, I don't care, and I just walked away, and that's it. So that's about the only interaction you should have with your Wikipedia article. If you think there's inaccuracies or problems, there is a talk page, and you can leave a note there and say this is wrong, or this misses out something quite important. Here's a reference that any editor there's, there's can use. No, there's no mention of the Department of Conversation on your Wikipedia page. <laughs> I think I'm going to have to correct that after we go off. Yeah, that. well, no, that's the thing. You know, there, there could be a link to this. It's interesting yeah. to hear how accurate it isn't because I know when I was yeah. talk, when I was working in Talkback, I remember talking about Wikipedia and someone was all like, but Wikipedia is not necessarily true or accurate. And yeah. I actually said, I don't disagree with you. And mm. I said to people, I've got a page. I don't know where it's coming from, but I've got a page. Now, yeah. My challenge is, before I come on here tomorrow, go and change it. And it said things like I was an astronaut and all these things. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and eventually it got corrected. It corrected itself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, it was it very – It didn't correct itself. Oh, it got another, corrected. Another volunteer oh, okay. editor would have seen those changes and – But it too, lasted a little while. It would have because your page is probably not in the spotlight by anyone much. Of course. <laughs> right. So the more prominent you are, the more watch lists you're going to be on, the faster those changes will get reversed. But, you know, in New Zealand, again, we've got a pretty small editor base and they're the ones who have to go around and go, oh, bloody hell, and revert all these changes. And normally within 24 hours, they'll catch most of the stuff. But it just adds to their workload. So I tell people, like, please don't just vandalise pages for fun just to make a point because some poor volunteer has to come and do this now in their spare time and fix it all again. It doesn't take very long, but there's, there's quite a bit going on. So, so um, well, there's, there's a podcast section on your Wikipedia page, so I, I think it's ripe for having the Department of Conversation added. Yeah, to that. but you guys should probably hold back on that. I mean, what I would do is I'd <laughs> say I wouldn't do anything. What, what I'm going to do is, um, and even the word podcasting is, is spelled wrong. You know, podcast doesn't take it into cap C. So no, what I would do if I was in, if I didn't know you and I was in, I saw this page, so okay, I was first going to Google you and see do we have any coverage and reliable sources that we could use to improve this. Uh, I'd flesh out some no, of the sections. Okay. But don't, don't, let's not put this out there. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want people to do that. No, let's. no, no, no. But that's the thing. And, and it's, so it's a bit of a mixed blessing, isn't it? Uh, but generally, I find that's the consequence. If you're a public figure, then it's the same as saying, I don't want any media to cover me. I don't want to be talked about in the newspaper. I don't want any. You know, so I don't, we, don't want to be interviewed. We should think of Wikipedia now yeah. as basically a reliable source of media. It's basically a type of media yeah. coverage, or at least it builds on media coverage. And the same way, if you had an institution and you said, I don't want this institution mentioned in the newspapers, yeah. well, good luck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, what's that? It's not your decision. Yeah. You know, or as a particular scandal that happened, you say, I don't want news journalists to write about this scandal. Well, the journalists will write, decide whether or not they're going to write about it. It's the same with Wikipedia. If there's enough sources available, you know. 
it'll be covered. So before we shoot off, Jason, can you please just Google Advance Finder and put Mike Dickerson's name in there? Just Google those two. Oh, there you go. We've got it. Right there. Isn't Look at him. He's, he's yeah. brilliant, brilliantly far. So, it, it's uh, easy enough to find me if you Google um, Wikipedia at large because yep. I'm pretty much the only one. And are these details for what you're doing in Dunedin on your page, which is what? Yeah, Giantflightlessbirds.com? Yeah, yeah. Just, just go to Wikipedia at large and you'll see there's a calendar of all the stuff coming up there. But yeah, there's definitely some things that are being organised have through you, the museum. Have you been? Have you done one of these editathons in Dunedin before? We did one uh, a couple of months ago okay. on, for new in the public library on well attended. No, not particularly. So we're hoping to get the word out a bit more. We were just focused on the New Zealand, on the artist community because. I mean, I work with artists a bit, and the problem with artists is that they maybe have no public profile at all. Right. And they might have a Wikipedia article, but it's got no photo of them or photo of any of their work. And that's because of copyright reasons. The artist is the only person who can authorise a photo of their right. work to be released. So you really have to talk to the artist directly, explain copyright to them, because many artists don't even understand that, and say, look, we'd love to put some, a gallery of your work on a Wikipedia article about you, if you would like to authorise a couple of photos that you choose mm. to be released into the commons so mm. anyone can use them, they have to be clear that those could be used by anyone for anything. But And that's a trade-off. Uh, but generally artists are quite happy to do that because they realise that this then gives people a chance to see what they do. And those act as like, it's like a publicity press kit or something. Yeah. Um, and so I would. my goal is I'll be working with, uh, particularly at Christchurch with the art gallery there, we'll be doing a couple of public events. We'll be trying to get the art artist, artistic community in and explain how Wikipedia works to them, how all this happens, and then say, okay, now come along on Sunday, we'll do a hands-on event, you can bring your photos, we'll work on we'll the Wikipedians there to help you make a page, and we're going to try and increase the coverage of New Zealand artists as much as cool. we can. See, that seems like a valuable and yeah, yeah. and valid and warranted reason to have a page. Exactly. Some dick who did radio for a little while 10 years ago that doesn't. Okay, but now think about this, though. In 50 years' time, people will be trying to reconstruct the history of radio in New Zealand, and one of the main sources will be Wikipedia articles. Mm. So it's really is quite an important project. People will be concerned. So be every all these figures all linked together, and someone will be trying to write the history of New Zealand radio, and there'll be lots of names in it, and your name will be one of them. And mm. many, in many well, cases, I don't know about that. Oh <laughs> no, no, no you'll, be, you'll be surprised. So it's important that some of that stuff is caught and captured in Wikipedia, so that people can start to piece together this history. Because in many ways, Wikipedia is like the first draft of history now. Right. So we look at something like the Christchurch mosque shootings. Mm. That Wikipedia, a Wikipedia article on those shootings appeared about an hour and a half after the first news reports. And it's been, last time I checked, it had been worked on by about 650 different wow. editors. It's about 5,000 words long now, with about 300 references. And it's been furiously improved and worked on. But from uh, the first day or so of the coverage of that event, that was actually the most reliable source because it triangulated and brought together multiple different media and tried to only bring in stuff that was verified by a couple of different media sources so, so one news reported X, um, yeah. three news reported Y, yeah, yeah, news yeah. source would be reported Z, and then some volunteer tried to put it well, together and yeah. we'll put it here. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting, insightful yeah. thought. So, 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 so actually, on the day of, yeah, uh, on the day of that, it was terrorist growing, attack, growing furiously, and that was actually, a, and the news media know this. They know that if there's a big happening current event or a natural disaster. 
then the Wikipedia article is actually not a bad place to look. So you can see it's pretty substantial. That's ginormous. Yeah, I know. How many, uh, look at that, it's got 200 plus. Three, about 300 odd references last wow. time I looked. I know. So it's pretty well sourced from publicly available sources of knowledge. And in the behind the scenes, there were massive fights going on about what should and shouldn't be included. So everything was thoroughly thrashed out. Like, should there be a, a still from the, the shooter's footage there? And they said, no, absolutely not. First of all, it's not copyright. They don't know the copyright. Um, secondly, they tried to say, should, we have, should the shooter have his own Wikipedia article? And he said, no way, man. Um, so there was a lot of real passionate debate going on as you got some of these free speech people. So a question about that then, is the, is the person's name even mentioned, the yeah, shooter? Yeah, it's mentioned, yep, absolutely, okay. because it's mentioned in lots of media, not, okay. not in New Zealand, but overseas. Oh, yeah, uh, but, he does, but he doesn't have his own Wikipedia article, and I would be resistant to that. Because so if someone came along to make a Wikipedia article for him... I think it would be probably rejected, because there are clear guidelines on this. If someone's only famous because of one crime that they did, they don't get a Wikipedia article. Right. They get mentioned as a paragraph in the write-up of that And crime. that's when sometimes you see in Wikipedia, you Google a name or Google, yeah. your Wikipedia search a name, yeah. and it doesn't go to their page, but it goes to an yeah, article about exactly. them. So I did one, I, I, I watched a documentary last night about uh, this weird goings-on in America, gypsy, someone, it's a girl who's, yeah. who, uh, uh, Munchausen by proxy, her mother, and then oh, yeah. her and her yeah. boyfriend killed her. And I, I Googled one of the names and it came to an article. Yeah. Didn't come to her page, it yeah. came to an article about the crime. Exactly. So that's the general rule with Wikipedia is they're trying not, they don't want to create this amazing, you know, immortalize this person as a special person in history because this is just some nobody who happened to do a terrible thing. The event is more important. What I've been doing in the role of Wikipedian post that event is I've put out a call for public to donate photos of the aftermath, the follow-up of the shootings. And we started off with there were four, now we've got about 150, I think. And they're their own they're, photos, are they? Their own photos, their own photos, because, so they own the copyright for them. Yeah. And I've encouraged them to donate them, sign them over to Commons under an open licence. Yeah. We have photographs of the vigils and the floral tributes and the street graffiti and the signs and... Christchurch City Council um, said, yeah, sure, you can use that photo of Jacinda Ardern and the hijab. Yeah. And so, and I'd like other media to consider that as well. So that's actually a, that's a pretty big job for you because I was thinking, so I, I went to the Dunedin Mosque and took a photo of the flowers and put it on my Instagram. That's oh, the kind cool. of thing that you could... You could donate that photo to Commons right. as well. And so eventually what we'd like to see is the Wikipedia article will have a gallery of all the different floral tributes at different places. It'll have a gallery of street art and graffiti reacting to the attack, have a gallery of public appearances of politicians and follow up to it. And those are the images that start to define the event because those are the things that then go into the permanent record and get pre reproduced. Is, oh, is, this, is, this, is this sort of like a Wikipedia version of Creative Commons basically? Out of the same exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Creative Commons licenses is what you use for Wikipedia. I was about to ask, is it the objective of? But I think what would be a better way to say it is, do you think eventually... Wikipedia will become the biggest source of news because mm -hmm. I hear you saying that about the the, the mosque shooting. Yeah, will, yeah, will there yeah. be a Wikipedia page about the final of the Rugby World Cup coming up that'll be up 20 minutes after that Rugby World Cup finishes and it'll be ahead of all the news sources? Well, you should probably look up Rugby World Cup in Wikipedia because I don't follow the sports pages at all. But yeah, I'd say there would be. Like so that, what about so real time? In, in the real, real time? In real time, though, I would probably rely on those news reporters. But, um, and there'll be, there'll be one for each year of the Rugby World Cup. There should be one for the 2019. So, you know. Um, well, do you think that will turn into the biggest source of news, Wikipedia? Yeah, well, so here we go. 2019 Rugby World Cup, 
There it is. Now, the real-time results are always going to be sh- broken first by the actual media. Yep. But if you're looking in uh, two weeks later, that's disappeared from the news pages. Yep. But the Wikipedia article is going to have all of that stuff summarised, and that becomes then the long-term record. So it's a synergy. You know, you have the media cover everything immediately happening now. They're there on the spot. Wikipedia picks up the pieces, puts it together, and makes the long-term It's, it's re- almost like a manual RSS feed. It's bringing everything yeah, together, yeah. and it's going, here it is. Here, you've seen the true, information true, from all different true. outlets. Yeah. Here it is all combined for you. Yeah. So that I, that I think is the, the Wikipedia is the long-term, the media is the short-term. They both rely on each other. Because the journos, in a year's time, when they're trying to write, remember what happened in the Rugby World Cup, they're going to be going to Wikipedia and using that and relying on it as a source. And it will be pretty reliable because it relied on their reporting from the year before. Well, just on their word source, um, I'm just curious and kind of almost a little bit of a tangent. But sure. uh, school articles, you know, high school writing reports, obviously, you know, not with not getting into plagiarism and just copying Wikipedia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But can obviously Wikipedia itself is referenced and so obviously they should really probably just use those references as that's references. right yeah but can yeah. you know as again to the point where Wikipedia itself can be used as a reference no it can't and that's something that I try and impress upon schools and kids but the kids should all be reading Wikipedia and using it but as a starting point in their research so Wikipedia a good Wikipedia article will have lots of references at the bottom that back up every fact and those are the sources that mm. we should be getting kids to use if it doesn't have many references, like Pat, like your article, <laughs> I would say, I'd say it's definitely unreliable. It is definitely unreliable. And I, I, exactly. And that's because it's not based on anything. Now, I, when I talk to teachers, some teachers say kids who use, mustn't use Wikipedia at all. And I think, oh, that's come on, man. So it's saying. Would it be fair yeah. to say be cautious using Wikipedia on mm-hmm. smaller, yes. smaller stories, yes. but on larger stories, it's going to be a fairly reliable source. Yeah. And so on the I'd, 2020 American election, sure. it's going to be a pretty good source yes. on, for example, Cluther's by-election. Not so good. 1972, yeah. not so good. And you can generalise more and say that. You can look at a Wikipedia page and you can gauge its reliability Number of references, there are little icons in the corner that tell you if it's a featured article. You can go to the talk page and see how it's been rated. So there are lots of ways of, of coming up with um, an estimate of the reliability of an article. Number of references, number of different editors. We should be teaching kids those techniques yeah. to help them gauge whether they should trust this article or not. And we should be teaching them the same techniques for anything they read on the internet, of course. Every web page they should be looking at. Who wrote this? Where did it come from? Should we trust it? But I would go even further and say, hopefully we're teaching kids to apply those same critical eye to their own school textbooks and what their teacher's telling them, right? I, I had actually had, a, I had this conversation during the week with some friends actually about uh, how media literacy should become a, a, it should be a subject in primary school almost now, definitely yeah. high school. But oh, yeah, yeah. Being able to discern fake news, being able to reference and find yep. out if something's yep. believable, you know, being literate in what, and in, in the thing that we is the main thing that we consume these days. We yeah, need to be literate, aren't That's it? very true. Um, and the thing is that the teachers that the kids are learning from grew up in a, a generation ago in a situation where we were information poor, when you had to know where to find something, you had to know how to, how to go to a library and find an encyclopedia and find a fact. And we're, it's moving flipped now. We're in an information-rich world yeah. where there's too much information and a completely different set of skills are required is how do you filter through the big flood of information coming at you and assess reliability. Um, so it's super easy now to find out anything you want about anything, but now you have to use that those media literacy skills. 
and that's a that's a generational switch and i think some people are still fighting you know the last war as they say it's almost it's almost the complete opposite i mean you could yeah. you could trust the uh, encyclopedia britannica because of all the work that went into it mm, mm, um, yeah. but Two years after it was produced, parts would be out of date. Yeah. Everything is up to date now. But as you say, you've got to flick through all this yeah. shit to get to the gold, just, so to Just speak. go to the Encyclopedia Britannica page about Pluto, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, it's that's basically it. So I'm really trying hard. And I'll be t- talking about this when I'm based at University of Canterbury next month. Like we've got a whole group of students coming in. I know I used to work at UC in the learning skills area, and I know that a lot of students are not very sophisticated at judging the reliability of websites. Mm-hmm. So I think... Think this is something that should be baked into all university teaching is helping students get a feel for what's trustworthy and what's not um, and that should be a really important part of their information and learning dr mike dickerson this has been a fascinating conversation we've done birds we've done <laughs> insects we've done wikipedia we've done and we lots. didn't even talk about israel Folau at any one stage during this conversation i was going to say the only thing that we need to correct on this um rugby world cup one for 2019 that doesn't have the all blacks as winning it i, I think know, we could put that up there now that would probably be fine well you can now, try <laughs> wikipedia at large if people want to find it where you are you're in Dunedin for a couple more weeks you're off to christchurch after that canterbury yeah, after yeah. that but if people just google wikipedia at large they'll find all your details and what you're oh up to. yeah yeah that's easy enough so there'll be a calendar of upcoming events so i'm here until the, about the 5th of may then into christchurch for a month then nelson for a month but I'm happy to meet with and help folks who have particular Wikipedia problems. And I often find myself going in to give talks to universities or institutions. Perfect. So, yeah. Mike Dickerson, thank you for your time. Thanks, Matt. Have a nice day. Thank you. Well, there you go. Uh, and I hope by the time you've heard this, someone has taken my Wikipedia page down. That'd be perfect for me. If you can get around to that, that'd be great. Thanks very much. Um, And also, thank you again for joining us. Now, listen, if you're listening to the audio feed, make sure that you go and check out the video feed at some stage of some of these podcasts. You can go to our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash D-E-P-T of conversation, Department of Conversation, um, or us just look for us, search us on YouTube. We are in there as well. We don't... um, do a lot of watching on YouTube, but it's a good place to store the videos. Easy access for you to find as well. Um, so yeah, Facebook and YouTube, subscribe and stuff while you're there as well. And other than that, we'll be back in the next couple of weeks with lots of interesting people coming up. Uh, we have a writers festival happening in Dunedin over the next wee while. Uh, got a very interesting conversation coming up at the end of the month with the producer of the Chills documentary and a whole heap more as well, actually, right here in the Department of Conversation. So until we catch you, we'll see you next time. Hooroo! Hooroo!